I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is... I don't know why I just forgot. That was so weird. I felt like I jumped into the ocean and, and we were supposed to jump together and you did not jump with me. I That is literally what happened. I feel so guilty. <laughs> this is Celebrity Memoir Book Memoir Club. Book Club. <laughs> formerly hosted by two best friends until this very minute when I was betrayed and stabbed in the back. Can we say it again? And this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Anyway, <laughs> Ashley... Do you want to tell them what Celebrity Memoir Book Club is or have you lost the sauce? I know it. Celebrity Memoir Book Club is a gorgeous, gorgeous road and we zoom down it all together. The road is from one end of a book to the other, of course. But the toll in the middle is having to hear our opinions. Also, we are bad drivers. We are going to hit bumps. We are going to go left to right. We're going to potentially drive into oncoming traffic. You may not like what you experience or hear, and that's totally fine. We don't like us either. (laughs) Get out of the car, buddy. Wait for the bus. But if you do like us, join us. And of course, Ashley thanks all of our five-star reviewers at the end. We love you guys so much. I would also like to thank Base for supporting our show. Base lets you pack up your stuff and hit the road with high quality, well-designed travel bags and accessories that won't break the bank. Right now, Base is offering you 15% off your first purchase by using basetravel.com slash worm. And Claire, what else do we have to talk about this week? We have a huge announcement. We're going on a tour, baby. We have six shows up right now that go up for sale the very minute you hear us speak. I would recommend buying them as soon as possible. We have had problems selling out. We try to get as big a venue as we could everywhere we're going, but we are going to LA in January. We are going to Seattle, Portland, Dallas, Austin, and then we are doing a huge show in New York City, April 14th, for all the poor wormies that did not get to go to the show that we just had this last weekend, which we haven't done it yet. I think it's going to be amazing. I'm really Fingers excited. crossed. I bet on us. But you guys, I'm so fucking excited to meet you guys. We're going to be doing events beforehand. We're going to be doing meet and greets after. And then Ashley, what is the other huge piece of announcement that goes with this announcement? Oh my God, there is fresh merch. Fresh merch is coming. It will be on sale once again right now as you are hearing us. If you were at the New York show last weekend, you got a sneaky little preview. We will have had some things on sale and I hope you like them. I'm really excited about them. It's just very fun, cute stuff. We've got beanies to keep your worm noggins warm in the wintertime. We've got sweatshirts to keep your worm tummy warm we've got t-shirts tank tops etc etc mugs i'm excited and of course they were all designed by adrian at hello adrian a d r i a n n e she does all of our pasta pants and all of our stuff and so of course support her follow her we love her we also will be adding more venues to the tour as we go so if we're not getting to your city right now don't fret we are coming as soon as we can this is not the end all be all this is the starting point this is literally the starting line baby and we're so freaking excited i cannot wait and if you don't live in any of those cities we will be doing another live digital show with moment december 6th The proceeds will support the Brooklyn Book Bodega. And I am so excited. I cannot wait to see you guys anywhere, everywhere, in the internet, in real life. It's going to be so fun. And that's the end of the announcements. Ashley, if you were a celebrity, what would the name of your last week's chapter memoir be? It would be called Absolutely Zoom In. Last weekend, I was zooming. I was all over the place. I was watching people zoom when I cheered on the marathon. I was bopping around from place to place. I had shows. I went to dance parties. And... I wasn't drinking last weekend and it was a really fun and deeply draining weekend where I was just jumping around and screaming and having fun with my friends and not having any alcohol and still just 
vibing constantly. What a time. Do you have any closing remarks on that experience? Yeah, just that it was really nice to have such a fun weekend full of staying up late and running around all day and seeing so many people and doing so many fun things that didn't hinge upon drinking. I know that you can have fun when not drinking, but I always was saying like, well, for fun occasions, I'll still drink. And I am not sober, but I am feeling much more confident in the fact that I can also still do fun occasions sans alcohol as well. Impressive. Claire. Yes. If your life was a memoir, how would you describe last week's chapter? Shopping. Lovely. I have never been a shopper and I hate having to put clothes on my body. I get very little joy out of dressing cute. I find a lot of joy in dressing comfy. You really do love dressing comfy. The amount of times I've seen you in like the same patterned jammy pants is fun. I like it because I would yeah, always know how to- Yeah, it sounds like you like it. It sounds like, a, it sounds like definitely a compliment. In your- I don't dress well either. I like that I would know exactly how to draw you. But I do think as somebody who is on stage a lot, I have to just kind of fucking commit to outfits now. So I've been shopping a lot and I feel like something that was really helpful to me on TikTok was watching people get dressed just because I assumed everybody who looked cute all the time just like did it snap of the fingers. I just assumed in their head they were like, this is such a cute outfit. And then they just made it happen. And that was that. And watching people try and fail a lot but on their journey to the outfit of the day was actually quite illuminating to me it's hard when you only see the final product to know that it's okay to put an effort to stuff so I have allowed myself to be shopping and I've allowed myself to look at it and try and put an effort without feeling shame and stress hopefully you're not looking at me being like you look fucking stupid Claire but also maybe you are and that's okay I'm on a journey now that I'm on stage a lot unfortunately part of the truth of being a live performer is that I do have a corporal body that must be clothed I don't feel good when I look like shit on stage then I come off and I'm like, well, I just performed for hundreds of people. And now there's a lot of photos where I look like ass. I'm doing it and I'm feeling better. And I feel just more settled in my body than I did younger. You know what I mean? Part of it is just like, I hate having to think about the way I look because then I spiral and the way I deal with it is I just don't wear makeup and I don't really try to look cute. And then it's just not a part of my life. And I feel like I'm really like, okay, there's a way to look appropriate without losing the day to an ugliest girl in the world attack. Anyway, you guys, I would feel bad about rambling right now, except for, oh boy, do we have an episode for you. And by that, I mean, no boy, do we have an episode for you. So today's episode is by one Tamara Maori Housley. Sister, sister. Yeah, you might know her from sister, <laughs> sister. So this book is called You Should Sit Down for This. No, you shouldn't. Stand up, get a sandwich. Well, I guess sit down and listen to our episode, but this book is like background noise. I was kind of debating that this might be a good title because I do think that in order to be safe, you should be sitting down for this. There is a chance you'll pass out from boredom. And if you're standing up, you could hit your head. And concuss yourself. You could get concussed reading this book. I feel like if you were to get concussed reading this book, that would be a real shame. I do think this would be a great book to help you lull off to bed. What I would recommend is that you sit down for this and then stand up for this and then sit down for this and then stand up for this because the blood flow will keep you awake through the reading. Ashley almost didn't want us to do it. Last minute, she was like, I'm worried there's gonna be nothing in it. And then I started the book before you and I had to call her and be like, listen, put all your fears to rest. It's worse. <laughs> Let's start with how long the book is. 177. Pages? words. I don't know why I said pages. I meant to say pages exclamation mark, but it came out pages question mark, but I know I read it. This book could have fit on the second iteration of Twitter. <laughs> I do want to say also that of those 177 pages, 50% of them are situations that never happened. 
there's a lot of walk down this idea with me. And you're like, pourquoi? There'll be like six page analogies about how love is like wine, where she'll just talk about different kinds of wine, which I think she actually has a wine brand. So that might have been an ad. She'll just explain how baking a cookie is like coming into a home and feeling welcome. And you're just like, wow, should we get into it? Yeah. Jesus. Buckle up, you guys. I mean, buckle down. Loosen your belt and relax. No, we'll make it funny because we have a lot of energy. We just both ate a whole pack of fruit snacks. Tamara Darvet Maori was born July 6th, 1978, two minutes before her identical twin sister, Tia. Now, I want to right off the bat mention that Tia rarely comes up in this book. It is shocking to me. I have seen internet rumors that they're in not such a great place right now. There are a lot of reasons speculating on why they might not be in such a great place. But to me, the confirmation is how much Tia is not part of this book. I cannot fathom having, first of all, an identical twin that you don't mention as part of your life story. Second of all, an identical twin who was your co-star for a number of years. They starred together, not just on the show Sister Sister, but then again later on the show Tia and Tamara, which doesn't even get mentioned. Yeah. I just only know that now because I was looking at her Wikipedia to find out her birthday. They were in Twitches. They were in... Twitches too, I think. Yeah, there was another one where they were... Twitches tree. No, remember the when they were grandparents that got put in kid bodies? The, you know, remember the movie 17 again? There was another version of that that was on the Disney Channel with Tia and Tamara and I think Taj and they all got magically transformed into teenagers when they were grandparents. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> Tia does not come up in this book. It's very bizarre. This book, I don't know why she wrote it. I would do anything to sit her down and say, what was the fucking point of this? I think on the Patreon this week, we'll definitely do a deep dive into Tamara, Tia. There's been a lot of scandal, but you guys know me. Normally when I walk away from these books, even if they think they've said nothing, I feel like I get a real sense between the lines of who they are. There's almost nothing here to get a sense of, except for the fact that I do wonder if who she is is someone just desperately trying to put on a certain character. Even when that's true, I think I can kind of sense why and from whom. Like, who are you trying to impress with this character? There's so much missing from this book that I can't even tell what's missing. The only thing I can guess is her mom, her parents. I think it is a combination of, it seems like a strict and interesting character mom. Like, her mom is definitely hard to pin down, but I don't think she was specifically good. And then I think also... Neither of us knows that many people who are this religious in this way. Yeah. And I think that the godliness plays an enormous role. Anyway, you should sit down for this. And then stand up and then sit down again and then dunk your head in a friggin' bowl of ice cubes because you're going to get sleepy. Introduction. Conversation high tea. So first she defines what a Tamarism is. Gorgeous bite-sized drops of wisdom that have the power to enlighten us, keep us grounded, and occasionally rock us to our cores. Tamarisms pack a powerful enough punch to make you think, whoa, that was something. But they aren't going to leave you groggy from too much sweetness either. These little decked out pockets of truth have been a guiding factor for me, and they've inspired each of the stories I'm going to share with you in these pages. That is a bold thing to say about your own declarations. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to be like, I invented this phrase. It's a phrase about how great my phrases are. It's a phrase about how I'm going to say a number of things that will shake the way you view the earth. Can I say something that would rock me to my core? I wouldn't even expect it to be too sweet. Yeah, me either. I would expect it to be specifically quite dark, I think. She also in this is like, listen, I love a beautiful home. And she walks you through the experience of walking to our home. We're in Napa Valley. 
You can smell fresh baked cookies. I ask you, tea or coffee? You can have anything you want in my house because I'm prepared for it all. I'm the perfect hostess. You don't have to be polite here. I'll give you anything you want. We'll just sit and enjoy as many cookies as we want because I have the most welcoming, delicious home filled with scents of caramel. And you're just like, whoa, okay, Tamara. Yum. It does sound like it'd be nice to go over to her house for a tea. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the petite fours, mini cheesecakes, tiny lemon tarts, and some mini chocolate tea cakes will be served up soon enough. I do think that's too many sweets for two people. Well, maybe we both go. (laughs) That's the perfect amount of sweets for three people. So then this book is divided into three sections. The first section is the past. This course opens with a beauty pageant followed by a delectable performance at a local mall. Next, we'll move to Los Angeles, where we will enjoy one of my house specialties, layers of failure topped with a sprinkle of massive success. So we are going to actually explain what happens in this chapter, but that's pretty much it. She really gives you each section in one paragraph and then spreads the exact same thing out into like 40 to 50 pages. This book is written interestingly in that it is a collage of a lot of different ways of writing. So this book includes obviously the memoir, just first person writing. And then it includes scenes from like a screenplay, which is something that we see a lot. Matthew Perry did it a lot. Who else just did it recently? Constance Wu did it a bit. Yeah, it's very much an actorly thing to be like, I'm going to write this scene as a scene in a screenplay. But then she also uses listicles, but then she also just uses like bullet point sentences. None of it comes together to mean much of anything. Also, a lot of hers aren't even a fully written out scene their description of a movie that might exist and what would happen in that movie anyway so she starts off here's a question admittedly a weird one if you were a fabric which one would you be so the reason she's asking is because her first role was in a play called textiles of the world where she played silk smooth but never slippery light and cool and wonderfully soft and then she goes on to talk about when she got to play this role she loved it she had so much fun she had one line later she goes on to be in a pageant and she's there up against all of these super intense pageant people she's in texas you imagine i think she's from dallas texas yeah texas pageant people are pageant people she considers herself pageant curious her mom doesn't let her wear a lot of makeup didn't let her straighten her hair and she's like i can tell that i'm different than everybody here but when she goes up to the talent portion she sings her little heart out and even though she messes up the last note she gets third place for the talent competition can i say this was the first part of the book where i was like where is tia me too because did they enter one twin daughter in a beauty pageant and not the other i don't know it's really hard to tell also she describes this pageant for about five pages we talk about this pageant later we only talk about sister sister for three pages so she gets third place and she says i know i won today but i don't feel comfortable this just isn't for me i don't feel like i fit in I'm not interested in putting all my energy into this. She writes that she felt very lost when she was young, which you know is a big pet peeve of mine because I think all young people feel lost and I don't like when people think that they're special for being like, I was just a kid, but I didn't know what my job would be. Okay. (laughs) And then to be also to then follow it up. So when I was seven years old, I auditioned and got a full-time job. And you're like, okay, that's actually not a good way to answer that question. Yeah, It's so easy to feel lost and alone when you're not sure what comes next in life. I mean, that's true. But we'd find something for me and it was okay that I didn't know what that thing was yet. So I guess when she was six, it was okay. But like by the time she was 10, it was no longer okay that she had not found her thing yet. So we got our first Tamara rhythm here, which is that real success happens on her own terms. And it's because when she won third, the talent division, she still didn't feel very good. And her mom says, first things first, we go to Dairy Queen. Let's take this trophy home and Tamara, we'll look for something else for you. We'll figure it out. Go get your stuff and let's go. So then they figure out that acting is going to be their thing. Tia, Tamara, and their younger brother, Taj Maori, who you may have heard of. 
It's a classic storyline. A girl falls in love with acting and performs every chance she gets until her mother suggests they move to Los Angeles, along with her twin sister and little brother, to try to make it big in show business. Cue the excitement, heartbreak, drama, and harsh life lessons that can only be learned on that mission. It's interesting to me, the missing piece is so many kids like to pretend that they just loved acting so much that they had to move out there. I guess you couldn't even pretend that that was true when you have a twin sister and a little brother. Everybody in that family was so obsessed with acting that you all moved out there. Also, there's a fourth sibling. What happened to that sibling? The fourth sibling is not mentioned until the acknowledgements. It's so weird what gets left out of this book. They all move out there. She writes, my mother, practical as ever, gave us exactly one month to book something. We had to show that we had the passion to tackle Hollywood by landing a gig within those 30 days. No exceptions. This to me is not practical. This to me is quite pressure filled and not nice. So basically she backs up and says, me and my sister Tia loved dancing in the garage. We would practice in our leotards every day. And finally, my mom comes out and says, I got you guys a job. Okay, so this is what's so bizarre to me is it is so normal for two twins, two siblings, cousins, anything to be just choreographing dances in their room, right? I have never heard of a mom coming in and being like, okay, we're taking this show on the road. You will do these choreographed dances for people. Like what? As the weeks passed and we got better at those steps, we started to weave them together into a full-fledged routine. We danced along to the recording of Rock and Robin by the Jackson 5 for hours. Our mom coaching us. Tamara, smile bigger. Tia, show more personality. Come on, girls. You got to stay in sync. I booked you a performance, she said out of the blue one day. So they go. It goes well. They're really excited. And then that leads to more and more. They're performing at local barbecues. They're performing at state fairs. And then they have a huge break. I guess not break, but to them, it seems like a big deal. They perform at the mall. They perform at the mall. The mall is where all the cool teens hang out. So they're like, okay, we need a new routine because there's going to be cool kids there and Rock and Robin is just not going to cut it. So they make up a new routine. They dance. Everyone thinks that they did great. At some point, the mom is like, all right, we're going to try LA. My mom was fully on board with her kids aiming high and harboring big dreams. And she, she wasn't on board. She was the board. And she did everything she could to support us. Mall gig number one multiplied into other mall gigs. We kept performing at county fairs where the applause was muffled by happy screams from the carnival rides. T and I auditioned for Star Search and never even made it onto the show. But ever resourceful, mom even managed to land us an agent in Dallas who booked us in small local commercials. Soon we arrived in Los Angeles on a hot July afternoon, the clock on those 30 precious days already ticking. So at the very end of the 30 days, they book a Chrysler commercial. So right as they were packing the leave, the mom said, Stop packing. The agent just called. You booked the Chrysler commercial. We can stay. Cute twin girls jumping up and down, screaming. Honestly, it was a miracle that no one called the police. Tia and I can make quite a racket. Tamaraism, it's okay to fail as long as you fail up. Which in this context means it's okay to fail as long as you don't. I think important to note too in this situation is one, Taj was booking stuff right away, right? I think they booked the first thing, but he booked more things. So I think they booked the thing that kept them within the 30-day clock that their mom set. But I think following that, he booked more things. Another important part of this Chrysler commercial, I think, is that for the audition, they were expected to know Double Dutch. Neither of us knew how to Double Dutch, but there was an elementary school across the street from where we were staying. I walked over the fence and a few girls were playing on the other side. And she said, I'm Tamara. This is my sister, Tia. We want to learn. So those girls taught them Double Dutch and then they were able to nail the audition. In this story to me, it's not like we both went out to the other school. It's like I had an idea. We were going to go learn. We were going to make this happen no matter what. And even though she doesn't bring up Tia much, I do get the sense that she's like, I was the driven one. Yeah. So then we get into their early acting career. They faced quite a bit of rejection and they were not doing 
doing well financially in Los Angeles. So they had had a two-income household back in Texas. So their dad stayed in Texas because that's where he was stationed. Her parents were both military parents. They were actually born in Germany and they had been stationed all over the world. Her mom retired from the military so that they could all move to LA and try to make it big as child actors. Which really calls into question her 30-day threat. She wasn't going to give up in 30 days. (laughs) I also am like, confused by did the dad ever meet them out in LA like there's never a follow-up to what happened what happened to the fourth child where was he living are her parents even still together I mean we don't hear anything about the mom past this section yeah her mom is in the past (laughs) she writes about how difficult it was reusing ziplocs and washing out disposable plastic cups was a small but constant reminder that the simple comforts that came along with being part of a two-income family had been cut in half and stretched to capacity like I said they'd been living in a two- income household in Texas. They were now living in a one income household stretched across two cities. She then gives a listicle of a day in the life of a wannabe tween actress, which is essentially going to school, everybody making fun of you because you were so poor. And then after school, running lines, going to auditions, coming home, doing your chores, thinking about quitting, deciding not to quit, pray you'll land the next job, go to sleep. So Taj started booking quite a few roles. He was on Full House first. He booked a bunch of other things. And one day, one of the producers on one of his projects went up to the mom and was like, you have twins? And she was like, yeah, I've got twins. Want to see them? A meeting was set, but initially we didn't get our hopes up. We had been to enough so-called important meetings that we were jaded by the time we were 11. But when we sat down with Irene, all of my doubts popped like bubbles. So Irene asked them what their ideas are. What do you two think would make a great show? No one in the industry had ever asked us what we thought before. In a rare moment of twin synchronicity, we immediately blurted out, Sweet Valley High meets the parent trap. What? You immediately blurted out in synchronicity? She also says back when her mom said, I booked you a performance, T and I stopped dancing mid-step and looked at each other. While identical twins are not telepathic, the look we gave each other communicated, wait, she did what? She's really into being like, we are not in touch or in communication or in sync. It's so interesting to have a rare moment of twin synchronicity where you both blurt out the most complicated sentence I've ever heard. You and I have spoken in unison before, planned and unplanned, but it's never really been like more than a couple words. Two 11-year-olds sat down to an entertainment meeting and had a perfect concept for a TV show that was blurted out in synchronicity. I don't know. Sweet Valley High meets the parent trap was obviously sister, sister. It obviously came to existence. She says it was the first time we weren't trying to fit a producer's preconceived notion of what a character looks like. They saw the spark. They got writers in there. Being cast on Sister Sister playing Tamara Campbell was a gift that changed my life. I mean, it was a great show. Great role. At the first table read, her mom says, you know, this is not going to last forever. What is happening right now is so special, but there's more to you and more to your life than this. It's who you are inside your character that matters most. Her words hit like a category four hurricane swooping in to wipe out the parade that I've been waiting years to see. All I heard was negativity, but now I know that she was simply planting the notion that someday this would end and I'd have to go back to civilian life. Once again, very interesting that her mom who said, oh, the fun dances you guys do in your room, we're going to make that a job. We're actually moving to make this job a bigger job. Now that you have that big job, don't get too happy. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, her mom is right. Like, don't get too caught up in this moment. It's not who you are, but... It feels like for a parent that pushed them all the way here to not give them the celebration. Yeah. Also, I don't know what she said was that bad. I think she took it to be like, 
by the way, this won't last. But it sounds like she was saying, hey, you know, this doesn't define you. Who you are is still a good person. I don't know. You could have read it a couple ways. Yeah. So then she gives a listicle of a day in the life of a working teen actress. That's exactly what you think. You get to the studio. You work all day. You do school in the off times. You guys know the drill. We've done a million of these. Then when I was 21 years old, sister, sister was over. Just like that. I'm not looking for piles of sympathy here. So there's no need to pull out your miniature violin. You guys, that's it about sister, sister. It's three full pages from conception from the rare moment of twin synchronicity to at 21 years old, just like that, it was over. That's the entirety of her sister, sister description. I also have not really any sympathy for a fairly long running children's TV show getting canceled. Like you guys were older now. You can't keep playing teenagers. They played those characters all the way through college. You can't be adults doing adult TV for little kids. I guess I feel bad that when the cushed gig ends, you're like spit out into the world to say like, I don't know, see what's next. We know that the transition from kid acting to adult acting is really hard, but I don't have sympathy for sister, sister getting canceled. (laughs) I was not going to pull out my tiny violin. Can I say how crazy it is to find out that they played those characters from the age of like 13 to 21? I remember watching that show and thinking they're the oldest, most mature people in the world. (laughs) Everything I know I learned from sister, sister. Can I actually say something a bit controversial? Of course. You know, the trend on TikTok where people make fun of how white women dance, where they put their hands in the air and just kind of like sway their hips. Did you learn that from Sister Sister? Yeah. And that's why I was like, betrayed. I was like, what the (laughs) fuck? I have a distinct memory. I must have been in middle school or elementary school watching the scene. Do you remember when they were in college and they had that basement hangout that was like a cafe slash nightclub? They watched a concert at that cafe underground. And I remember watching them dance with their hands in the air, swaying their hips and specifically thinking to myself, this is how adult women dance. And I'm so mad that now it turns out that was a farce, that it was planted there to trick me. I'm really sorry. And it's just hard because they're like, oh, this is how awful white women dance. I'm like, I learned it from Tia and Tamara. How was I supposed to know? Anyway, Sister Sister is canceled. And then she writes about how hard the transition was. I assumed the success from my youth would translate into a new success in my adulthood, but the phone never rang. Long spells of nothing would be followed by an occasional audition, the end result being the same. No, thank you. So she goes to Pepperdine and decides that she's going to have a new love. I had dipped my toes into other areas. I majored in psychology and thought about becoming a child psychologist. You guys will never believe it, though. She interns as a child psychologist for a while. And it turns out that some kids have like really fucked up lives. And it's so sad. Yeah. She's like, listen, I cannot deal with kid trauma. I internalized it too much. She's like, I would never be able to go to work and go home and not feel sad about all the really sad things the kid told me that day. So she decides to become a teacher instead. She goes, Tamara tests out new career choices. Take two. So then she tries to become a teacher, but right as she's about to go for her second round teaching interview, she gets a call that she has in fact gotten a new role on TV. Yeah, and she's like, oh, thank God I wanted to be an actor anyway. This teaching thing was such a goofy move. She works on some medical drama. I looked it up. It was on Lifetime. It was like strong medicine, strong medicine, women's doctors handling women's issues. I love that shit, to be honest. Me too. She's excited to play this role because finally it was a role she could sink her teeth into and really train. She hyped herself up. And that's what brings her to the Tamaraism. There is no express train to success. Eventually, another train will come. Success could be waiting for you at the very next stop, or you might have to transfer again. Who knows? There would be more big innings and more successes. And that also meant I would expect some drama and heartache in between, which like, I don't think is wrong. The weird thing is she comes to a lot of conclusions that I don't disagree with, but there's so nothing sentences that I'm like, okay, you didn't have to write a book to say that success isn't linear. We all knew that. Yeah, there are a handful of things where I'm like, yeah. Totally. And then I like go back through the paragraph that led up to it. And I'm just like, but why? But why? And I believe with all my heart that there is something spectacular waiting for you at the last stop. I don't know what it is, but I assure you the long, crazy ride will have well been worth it. Thank you. Sure. 
And then she tells this weird story about when she was in New York City once during Sister Sister. She really wants to go do something by herself and walk to the corner store and get gum. And so they ditch their security guard. And when they're out there, they're with their cousin Jerome and Tia. I guess somebody gets word that it's Sister Sister and they're chased by a pack of girls. So they hide in a CVS and they come back. This is like her example of a time she rebelled and feels so fucking bad about it. It's so crazy. She said, I got a talking to, but to be clear, it wasn't just because I was being mischievous. It was because I had made a stupid choice and I knew it. This is when I started to understand that there's a big difference between stepping out of your comfort zone and breaking away from your true character. And I had done the latter. I was certainly old enough to handle it walking a few blocks without a chaperone, but I should have known better than to purposefully ditch a man we were paying just to keep us safe so I could feel less like a goody two-shoes. Tamarism, never break character. I guess that I don't feel like this story lines up to anything at all. You didn't break character. You didn't understand the impact of your fame, which is not your fault. It's the adults around you for not explaining to you what this situation was like. And also the adults around you for putting you in a situation at all where walking to the corner could be dangerous. I don't think that that was like a moral lapsing. And I don't understand what that was to prove. I don't think that that was her showing poor character. I guess I don't think it's that much of a rebellion to be like, I'm a teenager. I want to be able to do one thing by myself. I don't know. And then she goes on to say that I wanted to stay in the game of acting, but not if it meant losing sight of who I am at my core. She got offered a screen test where she would have to do a topless scene and she says no. And she's like, I'm so proud of myself for never wavering in my values. That feels like a a point of character to say this is not something I feel comfortable doing and I stuck to it. And then you guys, that's it. Then we get to the present. (laughs) Now for our savory course, a plate of ribs with all the fixings, including a ridiculous fantasy date, dashed hopes, and a summer romance served with a side of self-love. All accompanied by a glass of crisp, sparkling rosé from the wise dating so difficult region of Northern California. This is my favorite sentence I've ever done in my life. We're on page 51. And she goes, I think we're ready to move on from careers and success to the topic of love. What? <laughs> to give your entire career 45 pages and have only mentioned sister, sister for three of them and to have spent eight pages talking about a pageant that you didn't win when you were six is an insane way of using your page space. So this section, she mentions several times that because she was working through high school, she never had time for love. So she was very late to the game of dating and she didn't know what she was doing. And this is something I think a lot of people relate to, especially in this day and age. I don't think you have to be a child star. I don't know. People mature at different ages. I felt very late to dating. I think it is very common to like all of a sudden be like, wait a second, where did it all go? I feel like everyone learned all this stuff before. But then she never figures it out. This is a really weird chapter and we can't exactly put our finger on like what went wrong for it. But it starts with a five page description of a dream teenage date that never happened. And I'm like, why again, the choice to give the page real estate to something that did not happen. She walks you through an ideal date where a teenage boy picks her up, takes her to a carnival. And then at the end of the night, they kiss at the top of the Ferris wheel and then he drops her off. I mean, who cares? It didn't I don't know. Happen. I'm sorry that I even brought it up. I guess it's important to me to bring up that it's not even like a unique dream date. You could have just said, you know, I always wanted that perfect high school date, like a rom-com. Yeah. She didn't actually have to walk you through what she thinks is a unique dream date for a teenager, you perv. So then she explains early dating and what early dating was like for her. And she calls it fake ass dating, a fad, F-A-D. If I were to make a movie about that period of my life, it would be described like this, 50 fake dates. And to her, a fake date is Tamara Maori, the self-proclaimed queen of fake ass date, masters the art of hiding all of her quirks, imperfections, and the other normal human traits and replacing them with superficial qualities, unrealistic expectations, and uncomfortable shapewear. She looks pretty, but will the men know she's real? She also writes that movie R for drinking, excessive hair straightening, and unreasonably high heels. 
girl, wait till you find out about sex. (laughs) (laughs) So she takes us through her era of fake ass dating. And she explains that this means the dates where you're so intent on putting your best foot forward that the person present is more of a fraction of your true self. The next sentence goes, you want examples, eh? 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 (laughs) Your getting ready ritual includes watching hours of makeup tutorials on YouTube so you can totally change the look of your already perfect face. Your spanks are so tight you're wondering if you can slip into the bathroom, the restaurant, and take them off and put them in your purse so you can breathe. You're freaking out because your false eyelashes are going to fall off and land right in your Caesar salad. If you can relate to any of this, make no mistake, you were on a fake ass date. But then also, if he says he doesn't want kids and you pretend like that's fine, that's a fake ass date. So just like any relationship you're in that doesn't end in a perfect marriage is fake. Yeah. And so it really conflates putting on airs and like trying to present your like fanciest self, even if you don't normally dress up that much. But it also is straight up lying about what you want out of a relationship. And to me, those things should actually be hugely different. No matter how much you might love the guy, you're not getting anywhere by not being true to you. So like, I agree that this idea of pretending to be some dressed up fancy lady on a first date is different than being in love with somebody. This is a really broad range of things to be tying in as one situation. I do agree that you should be yourself when pursuing a relationship. But I also think that if you don't normally put on makeup and like a super cute outfit to go out to dinner on a Friday night, if I was going on a date to the movies with someone that I was really into but had only gone out with twice, if I'm going to the movies with you, I'm wearing leggings and a hoodie. If I'm going to the movies with a new romantic person, I would probably wear something a little bit cuter. That's not me not being myself. You know what I mean? I don't really know what she's talking about here. I don't know what she's talking about either. And I also wouldn't call that a fake ass date. I don't think that's a good name for it. Because I think a fake ass date is if somebody invited you on a date and then you went to the restaurant and the restaurant didn't exist. I'd be like, this was a fake date. (laughs) A fake date would be me showing up to a date and saying like, my name is... Samantha and I'm a flight attendant. See, I still wouldn't call that a fake date. I'd say you're being fake, but the the date is real. Yeah. Okay, how about this? What if I sat down today and I said, last night I went to dinner with someone named Ernesto and we had spaghetti and meatballs and I didn't. I guess I still think that's just a lie. Okay, <laughs> then I don't, I, I like fundamentally don't understand what this is. I don't either. <laughs> I really think she like loved the idea of calling it a fad for short, but then she couldn't reverse engineer what a good acrostic would be. See, I think that her big problem is that she has a really hard time with the fact that she's been in other romantic situations besides her current husband. That sounds right to me. And so she's like, these were all fake situations where I wasn't myself because she can't wrap her brain around the fact that she like put her whole self into anything and it didn't end in marriage. I think what you're saying is really unraveling things for me. It's the mentality that you don't want to end a relationship because you don't want the relationship to be a failure. But it's like, well, the relationship, you hate it. You're miserable. You're unhappy in it. You didn't fail at this. It's just like you tried somebody out as a partner and they it didn't work. Like I've never understood the idea of seeing a breakup as like a personal failure because it's not a business that you can get off the ground. It's just you're testing out compatibility. And if you weren't compatible, then nobody wins when you stay in it. A lot of people think success is partnership of any kind. Yeah. Or like sticking it out. Right. Making it work no matter what. I just, I'm like, I don't know, try somebody else to see if anybody else would work better. She is probably somebody who, until she got married, considered all of those breakups failures. And this is her way of saying it wasn't a failure. It was a fad. Yeah. I went through like a trend. Right. I wasn't being myself. How could we have had real love if I wasn't even me? Okay. Let's get into the fads. Fads number one was she was studying abroad in Florence. She met this guy. He was really cute. He was Italian. They had so much fun. They were very in love, but it turns out he wasn't a Christian. He was just very like spiritually open. And at first she thought that would be good, but it turns out she 
wants somebody that she sees eye to eye on. And she says, I respect everyone's religious choices, but I needed a boyfriend who saw eye to eye with me on that. But I was so smitten, I couldn't easily pull myself out of the relationship. I think that that's like very valid. But also I will say it's very valid. I think when you're in your early 20s, especially she's in college at this point to be with someone where you're like, okay, well, I don't think that our like long-term beliefs wholly line up, but I'm so infatuated with you right now that like, I'm just going to keep diving deeper, even though you're going to get more hurt at the end because you're still young. I just like, don't know how that was fixed. She knew who he was. He knew who she was. She was like, can we make this work? At the beginning, she said, I think I could be with someone who's spiritual, even if it's not my belief system. And then at the end, she said, oh, actually, that's very important to me. Yeah. This feels like a real ass date. It feels like a real, real romance that would have been really heartbreaking because it seems like the breakup wasn't anyone's fault. It was just like long-term compatibility, which is one of the hardest breakups there is. Then the weirdest thing is fad number two is- Same guy. So she's in college and it's like, I don't know when she was in college, but she's definitely over 21 at this point because she was in Sister Sister until 21. Then she went to Pepperdine. So at one point- She drove with this guy to his parents' house in Arizona and they spent the weekend there and they didn't have sex because I think she was waiting for marriage. But when she got back, standing in the driveway was my mother. It was like a sixth sense had told her exactly when we were going to pull up. She probably looked out the window, actually. Her hands were on her hips and her foot was tapping with impatience and her facial expression was easy to read. I'd kill you if you weren't my own flesh and blood. Worse than yelling at me, my mom was completely silent. I was ashamed and I'd let her down by going away with someone I knew didn't share my values. And I saw how running off with Leonardo was ultimately a childish way to prove a point. I don't know what's wrong with being in your 20s and spending a weekend with your boyfriend. I don't think anything is wrong with it. I also don't know why her mom has any sway over what she she's a fucking adult. I think this combined with the fact that the mom seems to have pushed them into acting in the first place is literally the only clues that led us to believe the mom might have been hyper controlling. And then she goes on to say, prepare yourself for the fact that this saga with Leonardo doesn't end until I burst into tears at a college dance. She does not talk about Leonardo again. And then that college dance is like a passing sentence that she comes to in a few chapters. And that's the last we hear of Leonardo. And there's no like back and forth. Yeah. It's so funny. She's like, prepare yourself. And I'm like, if I had prepared myself, I actually would have been incredibly let down because it does not come up again. She talks about trying to heal from breakups. And she says, when my first real love, Leonardo and I broke up, I cried at a dance. Prepare yourself. Yeah. Fad three was she dated a guy with a drinking problem. Obviously, that didn't go great. So then she says, I'm going to help you. And basically it's that you have to love yourself. Stand in front of the mirror. Hello, pretty you. And raise your right hand. Now repeat after me. I, your name here, swear to follow Tamara's seven rules of self-love. So she really comes to the conclusion that all the dating would have been easier if I'd focused on self-love first, which again, this is something I agree with. She's saying, wouldn't being my authentic self be the best way to attract the man I wanted? Yes, I agree. To attract a partner that you're compatible with, you have to first show them who you are so you guys know if you're actually compatible. But I guess I don't know why everything else is fake. Some of it is figuring out who you are. Like some people don't know who they are until they've experienced a variety of situations with a variety of people. And like they kind of help affirm your belief in your understanding of yourself. It's so funny because then she comes to this conclusion that me and Ashley really agree with. And then finally a light went off my head. Wouldn't being my authentic self be the best way to attract a man I wanted? All that fakeness was just drawing the guys who couldn't deal with a real woman in a real relationship. And who needs a man who is scared off by everyday regular stuff? So now she's herself and she says the path to self-love is paved with ridiculousness. There's a Tamarism. Did that shake you to your core? 
kind of you shucking. And also the Tamara rules of self-love are just like treating yourself when you need to cheer yourself up to show yourself love by taking yourself to the gym when you need it or like eating what your body craves, never losing sight of your value, blah, blah, blah. And then she goes on to be like, now I have a life that I'm happy with and I live for myself. And if somebody can fit into my life and make it better, great, but I'm not going to accept anybody who doesn't. And it's like incredible. I agree. I don't know why you wrote this though. Yeah. So now she gets into one of the most nauseating phrases I've ever read in my life. She's talking about meeting her current husband, Adam Housley, and she refers to him as a purpose partner. She starts this chapter by calling all the kinds of men you date different kinds of wine. And she essentially just rewrites that chapter we just said, but now it's done with the added bonus of like a wine metaphor that is a stretch. So I'm not going to go through them because they're just not that good. I also don't know enough about wine to understand. I like just found out that I like wine. And it's only because I was only drinking like garbage wine before. And then I tried good wine when I went to a winery not that long ago. And I was like, oh, I don't hate wine. I'll just give you one. Wine pairing number one, fake ass dates and chateau to bad dates. Chardonnay. See, this Chardonnay is as smooth and slick as butter and goes down easy, but has afternoons of Axe Cologne, mouthwash, and the air freshener that's been hanging on the rearview mirror of your car for the last five years. I don't know, man. These aren't as clever as I think she is. So then she explains that she met her husband, Adam, in bullet point sentences. Basically, Adam, who's a correspondent for Fox News, sees his old economics professor who has a photo of Tamara on the wall because she's his favorite student. And he points to her and says, I want to go on a date with her. I just want to clarify, he has a photo of lots of students. Which actually makes it worse. It's like a pizza parlor in New York being like these, all the celebrities that have eaten here. So then Adam is like, I want to date her. He gives Tamara Adam's email. They start emailing and he's in Thailand covering the typhoon. And he does like a daily dispatch for his family and she falls in love with the dispatch. So then he comes back and they meet. This movie would be billed like this. The uneventful first date. Okay, so she just writes their first date like a script and talks about how it was absolutely uneventful. Tia texts at one point and says, how's the date going? And she says, we're just going to be friends. And here's the uneventful, unexciting, not terribly romantic, but absolutely life-changing thing about dating that no one ever talks about. Sometimes the spark comes along a little bit later. Sometimes you are drawn to the person for who they are first. I found myself wanting a bit more of this Cabernet guy. I wasn't thinking about how much I wanted to make out. I was thinking, I want to be in the presence of this person. She is so unattracted to him. So they get into the car. You know what happened? Not kissing. I do not do that on the first date. We talked more. When I got home that night and slipped into my favorite jammies, I climbed into bed and reflected on this evening. It was so pleasant, so stress-free. But is it weird that I feel totally normal, I thought to myself? I'm not at all freaked out about when I'm going to see him. I'm not preoccupied about whether or not he likes me. That's when it occurred to me that everything was so nice, so pleasant, so very comfortable. And this was the polar opposite of everything I was used to. I kind of think you should have, I hope he texts me butterflies. Like, I do think that there's a fine line to where it becomes toxic. Four years in, you shouldn't be like, does he like me? Of course. But I think on the first date, if there's no part of you that's like, oh my God, will I see him again? Like, I wonder what he thinks. How did that go? I'm so excited. If you went to bed and woke up, and you're like, huh. I didn't think about him at all. That's so different than normally how I feel when I go on a date. I wonder if that's love. I, I mean, I guess every time I felt that way, I've not gone out with someone again. And maybe that's why I'm not married. I don't know. I personally like to like the person I date, but maybe that's just a preference. Can I actually recant? Is that a word? Yeah. Recant my previous statement. I would love that. I have before felt nothing after a first date. And then instead of doing my usual, I'll just not go out with them again. I've done this where I thought, you know what? Maybe that's good. Maybe I shouldn't feel so obsessed with someone. And then I've been in a relationship that it's not good. I hate a Stockholm syndrome boyfriend. So that's how she found her purpose partner. She like didn't really like him. And that was 
the purpose that they fulfilled together. Our marriage will get better and bolder with age and like a truly great wine, we intend to savor every drop. I feel like you and I went back and forth on how we feel about this. She says, with a relationship, it takes time to create the right level of tart and sweet. It takes work to balance the laughter and the light. Finding flavors is just the beginning. It takes constant effort and adjustment to keep everything balanced. I like the waiting and like letting flavors kind of reach their full potential and like finding the right balance within each other because I think that that's important. I think you're not going to find a perfect other person. You have to like have a balance with each other. But I also don't think you should be like, well, I don't really like him now, but the flavor will get bold. (laughs) I think for the most part, most of this is reasonable. It's just so boring and stupid and uninteresting. It is funny to be like, when I met my husband, I thought I would never fuck this guy. But you know what? Not wanting to fuck him was kind of an intriguing emotional state for me. So I I continue to not want to fuck him until we had to have children. So then she mentions briefly that they took a break from each other. And then she does this scene where she's on a horseback and loses control of the horse which is based on her real life. And it taught her a lesson that sometimes you have to loosen the reins to be in control. She talks about how she hates skiing, but she skis because it creates balance in their relationship. Well, I know. I think the skiing is a metaphor. Oh, the metaphor for like, you have to overcome the things that you're afraid of so you can be close and vulnerable with the people you love. So she doesn't ski? No, she does (laughs) ski. But I think the reason she's talking about the ski is her husband helped her to get past the fear And she's so happy she got over the fear because now look at how beautiful of a life they get to have together where they all ski as a family. Okay, that's nice. But she does take a step backwards then into the time that they were apart. This is where I thought we were going to get the juice from what she slightly mentioned before about them taking a bit of a break. But we don't. A few years into our relationship, Adam and I broke up. Why we broke up isn't something I like to discuss. So can we please leave it at this? No. Why even bring it up then? I didn't even know that you guys were married. So then I definitely didn't know you broke up one. So if you didn't want to tell me, then don't tell me. Why didn't our relationship work? Was there something wrong with me? I tried to be strong. I tried to stay positive, but the hurt took over everything. Well, she does say this thing. There was a time when I made some choices that I wasn't comfortable with. And let's just say that it resulted in a long pause in our relationship. How long? I don't know, but can I tell you what my secret theory is? Yeah. I think that she wanted to wait till marriage to have sex. I think she agreed to have sex with him under the understanding that they'd get married. And then I think they didn't get engaged as fast as she would like. And so she was like, what the fuck? I had sex with you and this is just a game. And so they broke up. I mean, she doesn't give me any other thing to believe. So I guess I'm on board. (laughs) Anyway, she says, fine. If I'm single, I thought I'm going to be a bad girl. I'd get dressed up in my version of skimpy. I even feel like I failed at this. I'd do sequins, but nothing tight or short. When I felt like being racy, I'd put on an off the shoulder top. I was clubbing with my dear friends, Andrea and Cherry, and sometimes my brother Taj. Just Thinking about the hardcore cocktails I drank back then makes me feel sick. Can you believe I actually drank a concoction called the orgasm? One night after a few orgasms, it was time to go home, but somehow the valet managed to lose my keys. Wait, do you think he lost her keys or do you think she was just like really drunk and he couldn't drive? I think she just couldn't drive. I think she drank too many orgasms and she should not be driving. I can't believe she's just casually like, anyway, I was trying to drive home after a lot of orgasms. (laughs) I was fucked up. Anyway, so she ends up having to call Adam because he still had keys to her house. But the thing that I want to talk about here is like, what is she even talking about? This is like the least fun version of a person I've ever heard of in my life being like, I wore sequins, but nothing short or tight. I drank hardcore cocktails. Something called an orgasm does not sound like a hardcore cocktail to me. Straight tequila is a hardcore cocktail. A big old dick coming out of a mermaid. (laughs) That's a cocktail. (laughs) I can't believe that made you laugh. Dale. <laughs> Are you drunk right now? I can't believe that's getting to you. What? Ashley's crying. I think that was the least funny thing I've ever said. I've had one too many hardcore cocktails. <laughs> anyway, 
So she talks about how she was just like binge drinking and then binge eating because she like didn't know how to take care of herself. And then she realized the best way to get back at him would be to eat healthy. And that's how you really should get over a breakup by juice cleansing and working out and feeling good about yourself. And then one day she goes to church and the usher says there's only one seat left and it's right next to Adam. And then they go have pancakes and then they say, let's give it it all. And he says, we can get back together, but I need to know that I have all of you. Code for sex, maybe. And she said, sure thing, baby doll. Let's hit it. Have faith. Look forward and move forward. I realized I needed to shift my focus from what could happen to what's actually happening. So a Tamarism, you need to look where you want to go. Oh my God. And then we get to one of the worst chapters in any book I've ever read in my life. I can't even explain to you how this made me think maybe women aren't funny. Listen, it can be hard to fit it all in, especially when it comes to luggage. With base, there's room for everything, even if you're an overpacker. 15 pairs of underwear for a weekend trip, no problem. A couple extra pairs of pants, bring them all with base. I myself... Am a pretty legendary overpacker. I have been known to bring two pairs of almost the exact same pant in slightly different shades because I don't know if I'm going to want like an especially dark wash or an especially medium wash for just like a night out. It's not one of my best qualities, but I'm very thankful to have a weekender that can fit it all for a long weekend that honestly, should I get stranded, I'd be fine. I love having a weekender because we're traveling a lot and I just need something nice to put my stuff in. I really feel like an adult for the first time. There's something so satisfying to me about the fact that I'm on my little business trip for my silly little business where we just laugh all the time, but I have a cool new weekender bag and I feel very professional and very like I've arrived. Base was created by the actress Shay Mitchell to make sleek and effortless bags, luggage, and accessories designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking fashionable. Base has thought of everything you could ever want in a piece of luggage, including 360-degree gliding wheels, cushioned handles, built-in weight indicators, washable bags for your dirty clothes, and all of the interior pockets you need to stay organized. Every piece is made to look better with miles so you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead. Whether you're packing for a quick trip or looking to breeze through the security line, Base has your personal items covered. Right now, Base is offering listeners 15% off your first purchase visiting basetravel.com slash worm. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash worm. So she talks about going to Paris. So Adam was reporting in Jerusalem and he was like, what if we met in Paris for a weekend? And she was like, hell yeah, dude. She like goes to the store. She buys new boots. She buys a new cashmere sweater. She wears them on the plane. Over the knee boots. 11 hour flight. She's wearing over the knee boots. And she's like, I was waking up in the middle of the night sweating on the plane. And it's like, unzip your boots. And then she's like, you'll never believe it. But meanwhile, in Jerusalem, the plane was delayed. So I got off the plane thinking we're going to meet in the airport. And then he wasn't there. So I walked to the information counter and it turns out his plane was delayed. So then she goes to the bathroom to try and clean herself up because she's all sweaty and her cashmere sweater and over the knee boots did not hold up over an 11 hour flight. And would you believe that Parisian women look so chic? Yeah, then they get to the hotel and she wants to clean up before dinner, but she plugs her hair straightener in and it blows a fuse in the whole hotel because little known fact, American outlets and Parisian outlets are different. Then she has to go to dinner with her hair in pigtails because she just couldn't get her hair done properly. And she's like, anyway, traveling, you really get to know someone. I cannot even imagine what I would do if I had to be in person with Tamara Mowry Housley as she tried to explain to me this outrageous story that is so funny. She thinks it belongs in a book where she was going to meet up with her boyfriend in Paris at the airport, but his flight was delayed by four hours. And I would just have to go, 
And then what? And then she'd look at me and be like, and then I was sweaty. My makeup didn't look that good still. And I go, oh, in the 11 hour flight? And then she go, yeah, so I had to go to the bathroom and fix it while I waited for him. And, and she would look at me with that look when like, there's nothing left to say, but they're waiting for a You're laugh. You're supposed to go, no way. You know what those people like to hear? Only you. That would only happen to you. Yeah. That's what they're looking for. At. That's so Tamara. A plane got delayed. Unheard of. Anyway, so she writes about how traveling with a bow is like the big reveal of a relationship. You can't hide much when you're in a foreign country and you don't speak the language. I mean, why are you still trying to hide stuff? That's such an odd way to frame a relationship. Okay, you guys. And now we are at the sex chapter. She goes, before we get into this, I need you to do me a little favor. And then she does this exercise where she's like, imagine you're at Starbucks and someone comes up to you and is like, tell me about your sex life. And you're like, that would be horrible. No. Well, that's what it's like growing up in the limelight where everybody wants to know about my sex life. It's crazy that America thinks they are entitled to knowing. I agree that when we find out a celebrity is religious or has any sort of belief, the amount of obsession over when did Tamara and Tia lose their virginities? When did Miley Cyrus lose her virginity? Like it is fucked up that we are obsessed with celebrity virginity. But with her, I'm just like, I don't know, man. And so she goes on to be like, people have always been asking me on the reel, which she was on. And then as a teenager, did you remain true to your Christian values before you got married? Seriously, she says. And she goes, while my sexuality is a very important part of who I am, I don't think it's anyone's right to ask those questions just because they watched me on TV when they were a teen or because I was on a talk show. As a woman of faith who grew up in front of the camera, there's always been a speculation about my sex life. Seriously, why y'all want to know about my cooch? First of all, it's the wholesome thing. Tamara is so wholesome. Therefore, she must be prude. This is a common conclusion people draw about me. Prude. You know who called me a prude first? My brother. Thanks, Taj. Just the word itself is displeasing. I would not want my brother to say anything about my sex life. That is inappropriate. For the record, I'm not a prude. Fun fact about me, I'm a true freak in the sheets. I've never seen a pruder paragraph in my life than to say, why y'all want to know about my cooch? Followed by, I am a true freak in the sheets. Anyway, so then she goes on to say, but we're not asking you, Tamara. This is your book and you're the one who brought it up. We're just readers going along for the ride. And I'm like, it is true. If you don't want to talk about your sex life, don't be like, everyone wants to know about my sex life, but I'm not going to tell you. So then she talks about the most important things that she thinks go into a healthy, loving, sexual relationship. Number one, inner hotness. She says we've all been physically attracted to someone, but you should be attracted to what's inside of someone. So to all the married ladies, sometimes you have to remind yourself what's hot about your husband and remember the inner hotness. He goes, I didn't fall in love with his face. Oh, no. Although it's adorable and handsome. Yikes. She is not attracted to him. To say, married ladies, don't forget, sometimes you have to remind yourself what's attractive about him. <sighs> she thinks he's ugly, and I don't disagree. <laughs> I think it makes sense to kind of have waves, especially like women, literally with our cycles, you think of people differently during different parts of the month. I think that it's fair to be like, sometimes I like look at my boyfriend and I'm like, get away from me. Also, there's like the reverse ick where sometimes just a rando person will do something and you'll be like, oh, that was hot. Can I say, and I don't want to be controversial, but I wonder if it would have been easier for her to remember that her husband was hot if she thought he was hot on the outside too. She's like, hotness is not just about the outside. It's about the inside. And I'm like, but sometimes it's a little bit about the outside. <laughs> and I'm not saying there's only one kind of outside hot, but I do think if you think that they're hot, that'll help. Yeah, then she writes number two, know what kind of meal you want. So this is where she says some of the prudest shit I've ever heard. She like cannot stop comparing sex to a meal. She says that you have to have a conversation about how often you need that hot regular meal and what the meal should consist of. 
I also understand not everyone wants to eat all the time. Some people are fine skipping dinner. Maybe for you, sex is an occasional super sweet ultra special dessert. Just have that discussion. Come to a mutual satisfactory agreement on how often you'd like to dine together and what you want mealtime to be like. I mean, yes, but why did you write this paragraph? To be like, some people want to have a lot of sex. Some people, like people have different sex drives. Say it like a person. Sex is healing. Have you ever just felt stressed or had a really bad day and then remember, oh, I think there's a bar of rich, dark chocolate in the pantry. That's exactly what I need right now. Chocolate is a wonderful thing and sure it can lift your spirits, but only temporarily. I say to you all, put down the chocolate and get busy with your partner. I don't think that that is what sex does for me. See what happens when you start to think of sex as the answer to your woes. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, I don't know why the temporary joy of taking a bite of chocolate is different than the temporary joy of the release of an orgasm, to be honest. I do think that they're both like temporary solutions. Yeah, she says reconnecting with your partner physically is the best and most fun way to remind yourself I'm not alone in what I'm feeling. I'm connected to this person who cares about me. Let's be real. Human beings can be annoying. This is another good reason to have sex. (laughs) It can be a reminder that you love your partner, even though they are a grown person who can't remember to put their socks in the hamper. I urge you to recast sex as a mechanism for healing. Chocolate cannot listen to your problems. Neither can your friggin' grown husband who can't put his socks away. (laughs) And oh my God. And now she has sex goals. Her philosophy has been to grow more, do more, take more risks and challenge myself. And my life and career have always expanded to wonderful new places as a result. I've always been the kind of person who goes, what's next? So she has sex accomplishments. So her list of sex goals is all locations. There's no actions. It's all places to have sex. And they are some of the worst places I've ever heard of in my life. I just want to back it up. And sex goals, I totally understand. And I'm sure it's very healthy to be like, well, what are some things I like to try? Like, what are some fantasies? Like, what are some role plays? What are some things we could explore our sexuality together in? whatever. I understand that you have to like keep it spicy, but something about calling them goals is so odd to me. It feels so counterintuitive. I mean, it feels like the opposite of seeing sex as healing. If it's also like a goal. I had a friend in college who was saving herself for marriage. She was very religious. She was from a very wholesome religious family. And I don't begrudge anyone making that choice, but I do have a lot of concern about the motivation behind that choice. A lot of using religion itself as like the guiding thing in your entire life is very complicated to me. And I I have a hard time wrapping my brain around it because I think that there should be a greater moral standard than just like what one leader says. But she had a very similar way of talking about sex. And that's what makes me so anxious about this way of teaching and this like way of controlling so many women. She would talk about it in this way of like sex is for my husband. It was really bizarre. Like I don't quite know how to explain it. And the only two times I've ever heard sex talked about this way is in Tamara's book and in my conversations with my roommate. Well, I think it comes with this idea, like, how do you be a good wife? And to be a good wife, you enter the relationship as a virgin. And then a good wife does love to have sex with her husband. But there's still, like, no personal sexuality. Yes. And she mentions a few times, like, knowing what you like, knowing what meal you want. But it feels still very hollow and in service to a man. Should we get into the list of the places she wants to have sex? Oh, yeah. The shower on top of the car in the rain. This feels like someone who's never had sex on top of a car while it's raining. Aside from sounding (laughs) 
slippery. I just imagine the car roof like denting a lot. Yeah, like kind of popping. Yeah. I also feel like it, it's hard. It's- oh, maybe she means on the hood of a car because I'm imagining her where like a sunroof is. Yeah, me too. But I also don't think that being on the hood of a car while it's raining is sexy. Every room in the house, the backseat of a convertible. I guess she doesn't say which one she's checked off. But I think if your goal is to have sex in every room of your house and you have not yet accomplished that in like 20 years of marriage. Every continent, on a private beach, under a fluffy duvet, in a quaint bread and breakfast, luxury hotels, the woods, the swimming pool. I'm the biggest believer that underwater sex is a scam. It's perpetrated by virgins to make you get an UTI because they hate that you're having sex and they're not. The rooftop of a skyscraper with a great view. On a picket blanket in a field of lavender. And my closet. Girl, you could do that. I wish you had used the words like sex fantasies or, you know what I mean? Yeah, like bucket list locations. Tamaraism, if you want to keep a relationship spicy, update your list of sex goals. You update your list of sex goals. It's not the Olympics to me. (laughs) It's a journey and it's fluid. Sex is beautifully intense and it's one of God's greatest gifts to human beings. And as a woman who has treated sex carefully and has made it a priority in her life, I just want to say this to you. Embrace your sexuality. Learn what you want. Explore everything you want to explore and enjoy the person you're sharing your life with. I mean, I agree, but then she goes, put the chocolate down, throw out the ice cream, make that list, get crazy and have fun together. I think she, throughout this entire book, conflates things where I'm like, why do those things fit together? I don't, why can't I have chocolate and sex? What if that's one of my sex Because goals? it feels like very virginal and Christian to me to conflate like the sweetness of dessert with what sex is. I don't know if she implies this, but there is something very like ladies don't let yourself go and just indulge in dessert and instead be making sure your man is satisfied. She never explicitly says that, but something about being like, don't eat dessert, have sex with your husband instead and that'll make you feel better. Something is odd about it. Also like almost like someone who's never orgasmed being like, like listing other types of pleasure and being like, all of these things are pleasure having sex, eating ice cream. If you've felt these things properly, they're all just different feelings that you can enjoy in different situations. I've never been craving ice cream and been like, well, dessert or a vacation would do the trick right now. Yeah, they're just different good things in life to indulge in separately or all at once, not in place of each other. Now we get to the third act of the Tamara roller coaster of the future. We'll finish off our time together with a selection of house-made mini desserts, such as fear of flying cheesecakes, chocolate walnut flavored job anxiety, and our famous mommy guilt topped with a dollop of creme fraiche. So she talks about working on the reel. She was living in Napa and commuting into Los Angeles every single Monday to work on the reel. She She talks about getting the Sunday scaries really badly. She never wanted to leave her family. She said she would wake up to a new kind of heartbreak every single Sunday. And it was the realization that tomorrow she had to go. She says, as all the years went by during my time as a co-host on the show, The Real, it became clear the job was holding me back and the environment was becoming toxic. Part of why she hated leaving was that she commuted to L.A. for the week so that she could be on her talk show while her family lived in Napa. And then in addition, she was getting reamed. She says that everything she said got misconstrued over the course of seven years. And I was like, in seven years, you didn't figure out how to say what you wanted to say. So she mentioned specifically as an actress, I had experienced plenty of scrutiny, but having my personal beliefs criticized felt like a direct attack on my soul. But then she talks about how she hates when people presume they know her. So I'm like, was it directly attacking your soul or were they attacking a thing that you weren't meaning to present? 
or were your beliefs the ones being attacked? Because I looked up a couple of the things she said on The Real and they are not good things. I do think she was like the stand-in conservative. This is based on almost nothing except for that she's married to a Fox guy. So yeah. And also that people don't like her, I think. She says, I'm a warrior. I never needed things to be easy, but as a talk show host, I felt like I was failing constantly. I always seemed to say the wrong thing. My foot was constantly in my mouth. She talks about getting a letter when she was doing Sister Sister when they used to get a lot of fan mail where she got a, a mean mail and it called her ugly and goofy. And she took it to heart. For years, she was like, I am the ugly, goofy sister. So funny. I would love to be goofy. I think we're both a little goofy. I hope I hope you guys think back there. She's a goofy bitch. I think people think that all the time about you. Thank you. But she really has a hard time being the ugly, goofy sister. And she carries it with her for years and years before she talks to a friend and her friend is like, I can't believe you're giving a stranger this much power. But she uses this very obviously mellow, nothing insult. And I don't want to call it a nothing insult. I think when strangers on the internet call you ugly, especially when it's the first time, it does sting a lot. But to talk about all of the criticism she got, she's gotten. So she really only ever talks about this one time that she was called ugly and goofy as well as the flood of hatred she got when she hosted The Real. But she ties it all up into this ugly, goofy letter. Being a talk show host is almost like being a fancy pinata. Pinatas are colorful, pretty, and clearly meant to entertain. But then all of a sudden, people are lining up to beat that pretty thing repeatedly with sticks until its insides are spilled out on the floor. But that's not all, folks. Then there's a stampede to grab onto every little thing that came out of it. Your insides are being greedily eaten while you lie there, utterly destroyed, waiting for someone to sweep what's left of you into the trash. I know this is a hard concept to understand. Try to imagine if every day after you got home from work, anyone got to comment on every little aspect of your job performance. I get what that feels like. Yeah. You can't open Instagram. You can't go online without people being like, we hate this about you. And that is a weird way to exist when you're bombarded with what people hate about you all the time. And it's especially stressful when you really don't think you're wrong. And I think that she stands on all of her beliefs the way we stand fighting the fact that Matthew Perry is definitely a misogynist. The way that people were constantly coming at us saying, you're assholes, you're assholes, you're assholes. And we're like, we really believe in this. I think that people are constantly coming at her saying like, your husband's a racist, your husband's a racist, your husband's a racist. And she like staunchly believes that he isn't. And she's like, what, because he works for Fox? And it's like, yeah, literally. Yeah, he works for like a white supremacist news organization. <laughs> she combats this by saying another Tamaraism. Only you can define who you are. She says people like to gloss over the rough bits until our story is smooth enough for their liking. Only you get to decide what to do with the complexities and nuances of your story. I get that, but you wrote a whole book. So why don't you indulge us in a little bit of complexity? <laughs> I pledged that I would never allow anyone else to tell me who I am. And you still have not told me who you are. So I don't know who you're telling anything to. You are under no obligation to agree with their assessment of your cooking, your career, your mothering, your hopes and dreams. Only you get to set the parameters of your story. I mean, I guess the parameters she set are nothing. She keeps going about this job. The next chapter is about how awful it was. She was crying all the time. She had a seven year contract. And as hard as she tried she just did not like it there. She says, there isn't a silver lining I can't find. Give me a glass of lemon juice and I will not stop until I find enough sugar to transform that sour nastiness into something delicious. I have to say to act like you have this incredible skill that you can find the silver lining of being the star of a talk show where you're making millions of dollars feels like not the flex you think it is. Yeah. So the silver linings are the people around her and that she won an Emmy. And I'm like, oh, good job seeing the good in an Emmy. Those linings are silver. <laughs> so then she gets into the attacks on her husband, which is one of the many things that she encountered criticism for while hosting the show. She talks about experiencing racism when she was younger, which you know, obviously I can't imagine that is impossible 
impossible to deal with. But then she conflates it with essentially calling it racism that people are mad that her husband is white. I do think it's notable that the only time she talks about dealing with racism is to set up this story about people leaving her husband alone. It feels disingenuous. So again, she says, my husband is not a racist, perhaps because he worked for Fox News. So he actually left his position at Fox News this year. But yes, it was because he worked for Fox News, I think. So she says, my husband was not a talking head. He wasn't an opinion host spewing any sort of negativity on Fox. He was a hard news correspondent, a badass reporting from war zones, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, mass shootings, earthquakes, the hard stuff. I am not someone to speak and say, like, how dare you support him? (laughs) I don't think that's my place to say. But I do think if other people are upset that his employer is a notoriously racist organization, I don't know the company you keep. (laughs) She then goes on to explain the weird speculation about my marriage didn't stop there. She's like, listen, I actually do love to decorate. I love to be domestic. I love to clean. It's my favorite thing. And she says, as you know, by now, I'm a Christian woman and I didn't think this side of me would come under fire, but it did. I'm failing to remember the specific subject of this particular episode of The Real, but the gist was marriage and relationships. It is funny. I'm like, you could go watch it probably. When I said you have to die for yourself each day, The reaction was so intense that you would have thought I had said the world is flat, the sun revolves around the earth and the unicorns are real. I have to say the phrasing you need to die every single day for your relationships is a fucking intense way to say anything. It's a really intense phrasing. And her excuses, it comes from the Bible. They say it a lot. I'm like, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but that's a really intense book. They literally stab a man through the hands and watch him just like starve to death on a cross. That's not like a lighthearted, happy-go-lucky book. Famously, the Bible is super intense. (laughs) And so to be like, why are you guys acting so crazy? All I said is that every time you do something for the person you love, it's death to me. And then she's like, it should be such a standard concept. Relationships involve compromise. A relationship shouldn't be selfish. You should be thinking about your partner. And she's like, when I want to stay in the bath all day, but I have to get out and go to a dinner with my husband or when he wants to stay home and watch football, but he has to do a red carpet with me. Those are tiny little deaths. I'm like, okay, I I would have called them like, compromise like I do think to be like spending time with you and my in-laws is a death to me (laughs) it's like weirdly intense the little things that she boils it down to I'm like yes I agree but the way you say it is a lot so then there's a Tamarism things happen for you not to you And so she says it all boils down to the fact that when I was on the reel, I didn't feel like I had control over my narrative. Comments were so easily manipulated and people were so hungry to criticize. But she feels very blessed that it happened. And she says the people that got her through were the people who still loved her. And she says to the woman on the street who said, you have talked so openly about postpartum depression. I don't know if I would have made it out alive if I hadn't heard that. It is you who saved me. To all the women who sent a kind word my way, you were my purpose. You were the reason I showed up every morning. Where is the postpartum depression in this book? If she has real vulnerable things to talk about, why weren't they in this memoir? I don't know. I was shocked when she said that she has been open and vulnerable in a way that has saved another woman's life because there is not an ounce of honesty in this fucking book or not even, I don't want to say not an ounce of honesty, but there's not an ounce of vulnerability or depth to this whole fucking book. It's crazy that she was able to do it somewhere else. Why not here? Why this book? Why does this exist? I guess, why didn't her ghostwriter just string together those sentences for the book? Or why don't they say, why don't you include this thing that you've already openly and candidly talked about? Yeah. There's nothing in here. So then she talks about parenting and I like the way she talks about mom guilt. This is kind of the chapter we had hoped for from Amy Poehler. Someone actually DM'd us and was like, I am a working mother and I never feel guilty. And I'm not saying that you should feel guilty. I have all the plans in the world to be like a working mother. But I found it very odd in Amy Poehler's book that she was like, "Um, how do I work and be a mother? Very easily. There's never been a problem. And I have nannies done. 
And I'm like, okay, I don't know, man. I watched Ashley with a bug and you never feel a bit stressed. You never don't know what you're doing. You never miss your kids. That seems like a lie. I don't know. I'm stressed right now. We got to wrap up this episode so I can pick her up from school. And you miss her. When you, like, I just feel like this idea that- I miss her so much when I'm not with her. Sometimes when we're outlining an episode, I'm like, oh, I wish Bug was here. She would love outlining this episode. I'm not saying anybody should feel guilty, but it seems like from what I can gather, being a mom is hard. And to be like, it's not hard. And I just- Hire people. I think it's weird to not care if your husband ever texts you back the next day. I just think that a lot changes. She had to leave town for a couple of days at a time every single week. And I think that like the feeling, oh, I'm going to miss something. I'm not going to be there for them. It's so difficult. And I really, I understand her saying I had to do it. This is what I had to do to make a living for my family, but it sucks. It, I'm sure it does. I mean, she says, I will say this. I'm not conflicted about it. Not at all. I love my work as passionately as I love my family. And my kids are being raised by a woman who is living out her dream. Acting is woven into the fiber of my very being. If you were to pull that part out of me, I wouldn't be my best self. And that's who I want to be for them. My best self. Acting gives me a purpose. Making movies thrills me. And I am fueled by the challenge. When I'm not filming, I feel excited just thinking about the opportunity. I love that. But she also says, on a more basic level, acting also pays the bills. As for the flip side of this coin, being a mother is a joy beyond anything I've ever experienced. The deep level of love is astonishing. There's no other way to describe it. These two tiny people have cracked my heart wide open. So if you're not conflicted about it, why all the fuss, Tamara? Stick with me. I'm getting there. And then she talks about like how it is logistically hard. She's like, you know, I have to take meetings in my closet where I hide from my kids so they don't ask me for snacks when I'm dealing with important things. And like, it's physically exhausting. You only have so many hours and I miss them. And she's like, I have to tell myself all the time, you know, not getting them a cookie the minute they ask for it is not going to ruin their lives. But I just try to be grateful and present in both. But there just is a logistical reality and an emotional reality that I miss them when I'm not with them. But if I were to be working, I wouldn't feel like myself. Yes. So she talks about savoring your summers, keeping your kids busy and then baking together. So those are good tips. Then she gets into a chapter that was pretty heartbreaking. She has a niece who was killed in a mass shooting, which I didn't know. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, actually, I teared up reading this chapter. Elena, she died in the Thousand Oaks shooting in 2018. And she just like has kind of this beautiful chapter that's an ode to her and everything she loved about her and all of her memories of her. But then she does this weird thing where she's like, in honor of her, my therapist said, what's the gift that you can get from this? And I was like, I have to live my life every day like it could be my last. And she's like, that's when I realized I wanted to do Hallmark movies. And even though I had auditioned for a Hallmark movie in the past and been rejected, I thought I have to try again for Elena. So now she does Christmas movies in honor of Elena. Elena loved Hallmark movies. She also talks about how she learned that you need to live for the now because you never know what will happen. I will say I don't want to tell her how to grieve. I would have loved to see a sentence on gun control. Not a single sentence on gun control, but an interesting sentence here. Some people never make it out of the womb and some get a few beautiful, precious years to grace this earth. Elena's number was 18 and I'll never be okay with that. What do you mean some people never make it out of the womb? What is that supposed I to guess mean? I guess you and I were both a little baffled about does that mean miscarriage or does that mean abortion? Some get abortied. If that is an anti-abortion stance in a literal chapter where you don't mention gun control one fucking time. I like don't want to put that on her because I don't know if that's what it was. It just felt especially, I mean, we're recording this on election day in New York where a lot of shit in this whole ass country is up for grabs. So that's how I read it. I don't know if that's what she meant. And so if that's not what she meant, I don't want to come at her. But if that is what she meant, whew. <laughs> Tamara, I see why they hated you on the real. And that being said, to compare it to Amy Schumer's chapter about gun control, she was, I guess we didn't like that either, but at least it was something. Can't we just have people who can do hobby shooting, but not mass shooting? No. no. Anyway, I'm sorry for Tamara and her family. 
That's horrible. I guess the conclusion is live every day for the moment and don't try to take away anyone's fun toys. And then we get to the end. Tea treats and wine forever. How did we get here? How long have we been sitting here? We've been sitting here about 80 minutes. (laughs) A while. I hope we meet again. Who knows how old I'll be on my second memoir. I hope 80 because I don't think you should write another one soon. You had... 44 years and this is what you came up with. I think you need a good 44 more in order to really fill this one out. Final thoughts, Ash? I wish Tamara was more interesting. I would love to get a counterpoint from Tia, do a side by side. I think that one of the most glaring things to me is Tia's absence. It was weird. I mean, where was her family? Where was her family? I mean, in the acknowledgments, she writes one sentence thanking all three siblings. Where was the fourth sibling? Yeah. So uh, overall, I guess I learned almost nothing. I did jump to some conclusions because that's all all we had. This was one of the worst books we had read in a while. I think this is like a contender for one of the top five worst ones. I mean, the thing is, you look at Danielle Bernstein and you go, well, she didn't have anything to say, but she didn't have anything to say. Tamara had a story to tell. She was like a national star. I mean, we've read a Full House one. We read Josh Peck. I mean, we've read a lot of child stars that gave a lot of themselves. And the fact that Sister Sister was talked about in three pages. I get if she doesn't want Sister Sister to define her, but then pick something else to define you. That's what always kills me in these memoirs when they say, I don't want this one thing to represent my entire life. Okay. So what represents your life? Crying on the reel for seven years? Yeah. I don't know. I guess. Then what are your views, dude? If you're so sad that you were misconstrued, she gave almost nothing. The idea that she spent so many pages on dates that never happened. She wasn't as clever as she thought she was. It was like not a good book. No, it was not. I'm like shocked that (laughs) they couldn't even fill it out with nonsense. I would have taken a what's in my purse. Shocked. (laughs) I am taken aback. No, but you have to admit that in a 177 page book, that's all they can muster. That's crazy. This is little. This thing is little. I think I could carry it with my finger. Even Stassi, Chriselle, and who was the third dumb bitch? Christine. Even Christine Quinn was able to fill out like a normally sized book with the nonsense. And this was bad. Anyway, we love you guys. Join the Patreon. Don't forget to join Geneva. It is bumping in there. It is so freaking fun. People are discussing. We're still like working on making it the best experience possible for you guys. But please check it out. And then thank you to the New Yorkies and Ashley. Thank you to our five star reviewing Wormies. I love you so much. Thank you to Inquisitive M. Jane. Stay inquisitive, baby. There are questions and I don't have that many answers. Thank you to Haley Collins, but I do appreciate you covering the ins and outs. Thank you, Hiker Emily. Oh my God, I hope to see you on top of a mountain someday. Thank you, it's G. G. Willikers. I appreciate this review. Thank you, Sue Lee Marr. Um, I appreciate you from here to the sea. Thank you, Remy Oz. I vote to replace Dr. Oz with you because you seem much nicer. Thank you, Oofy234. Oof, this is a beautiful review. Thank you, J186017. That's my new bike lock. I appreciate you. Thank you, Yeah123458262. Yeah, I appreciate this review a lot as well. Thank you to Denzel O'Neill. Why are there so many great reviews on this motherfucking plane? Thank you, Oh That One Girl. Oh, that one girl who writes reviews that I appreciate a lot. Thank you. Thank you, N. Hernan33333. The Hernans Hermits are singing your praises. Thank you, Eggy65. I call Bug Little Egg, and she appreciates you. Thank you, The Most Correct Opinion. This beautiful review is The Most Correct Opinion. 
Thank you, Olivia HP. From here to Highland Park, I appreciate your reviews. Thank you, Maggie Cook. I hope you're cooking up something fabulous because this review was delicious. Thank you, Marmy428, um, Lady Marmilot. This review absolutely friggin' sings. Thanks, Furry558. Ooh, baby, you enjoy your stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Shand H DJ. You're the only DJ I like. Thank you, SMM2314. Thank you so much. Thanks, Shalyn Thompson. This review is my new son. Thank you, Lasatter-Sitch. This was a beautiful sitch, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Kendra J. Black, my favorite color. Thank you, Stacy Spells Magic. This review was magical. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you endlessly. 